Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Center. Hello and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Faiza Zakaria from Nanyan Technological University and your host for today. It is a great pleasure to have with me guest Tom Hochebos, the author of Language Ungoverned, Indonesia's Chinese Print Entrepreneurs, 1911-1949, which is very, very recently published by Konami University Press this year. Dr. Hochebos is a research fellow at the Royal Netherlands Institute of Southeast Asian and Caribbean Studies. He's a historical linguist and has a broad interest in the Indian Ocean world. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very glad to have me. It's so great to have you. And let me just give a quick overview about the book we're going to discuss. This book explores how the Malay language was utilized by Chinese Indonesians in Java and um, parts of Indonesia in the first half of the 20th century to defy linguistic and political governance under Dutch colonial rule. It depicts how linguistic choices made by these um, print entrepreneurs brought Chinese-impacted Malay to the fore as the language of popular culture and everyday life. And it subverts the uh, official Malay of the Dutch authorities and how the ethnic Chinese in Indonesia articulated their liminal position in the vernacular press became a central focus in this book. And I should add that it's also an incredibly funny book and a really fun to read. So Tom, can you tell us about how you personally became interested in this topic and tell us a bit more about your intellectual journey? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to be very honest. When I first heard about this topic, I was postdoc hopping, so I would have taken on any job that was legal, but I was very fortunate. I um, was asked by the KATRV, so the Royal Netherlands Institute of Southeast Asia and Caribbean Studies, to have a look at their collection of Sino-Malay books and newspapers. Uh, Sino-Malay is is essentially um, books and newspapers written in the Malay language by people of Chinese ancestry. So that's a shorthand. And they had a lot. They've been collecting these novels and newspapers from the 1960s. But the problem was, Around 2014, KITOV stopped being a library, so they became a full-fledged research centre. But they wanted to bridge uh, this specific collection so that it wouldn't be forgotten and the scholarly attention to what they thought might be a very interesting topic. And I fully agree, it is a very interesting topic. And so that's where I came in as somebody who looks at language to look at what that language is and how it behaves in particular. But the interesting story there was that because I was surrounded by people in uh, history, in anthropology, in all sorts of fields, in the study of literature, I didn't just talk about language. I talked about this whole sort of colonial world and all of its inequalities and all of its oppression that to some extent was embedded in the language as well. So that became my topic. How... um, can we make sense of this world through the prism of the language in which it was expressed? I think that's fascinating. And you certainly turn a kind of um, a closure into a fortuitous opportunity. And 
Let me get back to the subject of your book, which is、uh, the people of Chinese ancestry, as you mentioned just now. And、uh, think about the term Chinese Indonesians、um, as you used it in your book. So,、uh, in your book, you mentioned that it's a very、um, slippery term that is、um, regarded as a theological shorthand for a lot of things. So, can you help us define this group? How do you find their linguistics、um, innovation to be so fascinating? Yes, it's a、uh, it's a slippery term for two reasons,、um, because it is a compound of two other slippery terms, Indonesia and Chinese, right? And you combine them, and you get an extremely slippery term, Indonesia, because by the nineteen twenties it was an idea, right? And it became a reality in nineteen forty five. But nevertheless, the people that are writing, the people that make their voices heard, are the parents and grandparents of Indonesians. So I've taken the liberty to talk about Indonesia in this sort of historical sense, and the reason I did that is because the people who were writing did it as well. So by the 1920s, they talked about Indonesia. They didn't talk about the Netherlands Indies anymore. So if you were a progressive journalist, progressive author, you'd use the words Indonesia. You did not use India Belanda. And then there's Chinese, and what is Chinese? And there's been books written about. Specifically, that question: What is Chinese? If you look at the Malay word "China," well, that is quite a sensitive word. I mean, it could be used for all sorts of reasons. It could be neutral, but it could also be slightly derogatory, right? Like the English word "Chinese." By the way, if you call somebody that in the street, it's almost never a good thing, right? And it could also be weirdly fetishizing. So there is something to that word. They had a lot of other. Basically, candidate words to express their identity. There was a Hokkien loan word Tenglang, which basically it's a bit outdated. It means somebody from the Tang Dynasty. And then the nationalists,、uh, specifically after the Chinese Revolution in 1911, started using the word Tionghua, and that is still by many Indonesians the preferred term. Not by everyone, but so there's all these competing words, and that I mean to to go back to the second part of your question, that's where I think this linguistic analysis comes in because.、Um, I had the feeling that by looking at the word choices of people in this colonial period, you could tell a lot about their political orientation and their cultural orientation, whether they were pro-Dutch, whether they were English-oriented, or influenced by the Republic of China, whether they were、um, sort of embedded in Javanese culture, whether they were conservative, in which case they would use the Netherlands Indies, or whether they were progressive, in which case they would use Indonesia. One of the interesting aspects in your book, which is、um, in the second chapter, where、um, I really enjoyed the focus on、um, the language that、um, we can cut off. A kind of term, low Malay. So I liked how you demonstrated that this language variety became popular、um, as a mode of creative expression among many speakers. In this case, Chinese migrants in particular, who perceived themselves as having a limited vocabulary and were not proficient in so-called formal Malay. So could you share with us why low Malay in particular became this choice language for communication, and why wasn't there a shift towards aspiring for a more Um, prestigious performance competence and the so-called standardized or formal Malay in Indonesian Chinese print culture. Okay, well, first of all, low Malay is quite an unpleasant term, isn't it? I mean, it would be like、um, if you told me,、uh, "Thanks for addressing my questions in your simplified English," something like that.、Um, but I've used it anyway, and the reason I did is because the people themselves did it. So it wasn't just. Used to dismiss、uh, those speakers with, let's say, varying fluidities. It was used by the people、uh, in a sort of reappropriative way. So they said, "Let's just call it low Malay. Let's just、uh, embrace it." 
And that's why I'm using it as well, because they could already express their reality in it, which they couldn't necessarily do in this sort of standardized high Malay. And you see this momentum that they become quite proud of that as well. There are people even who say, well, low Malay is uh, more expressive. You can say more things uh, than you would in the sort of, well, standard Malay that we are supposed to learn at schools, right? And so the question of why not formal Malay, well, first of all, by the 1910s, by the 1920s, there, there existed something like formal Malay, and it was people mostly working for the colonial government who really invested in sort of promulgating it. But it wasn't too widespread, say, on the marketplace. And I think people had, well, they, they believed, and, and rightfully so, that if they would publish their writings in formal Malay, nobody would buy them. People wouldn't be able to read them and people wouldn't like it. So that's why they embraced it. And, and also there were a lot of people who didn't know what the standard was because you need to go to some sort of education to know what it is. And people who had it foisted upon them and there were Malay speakers themselves had doubts about that. What is this language we're supposed to learn? And why is somebody standardizing my own language for me, right? But also the sort of things in the language itself there's a very nice vignette by an author called Kwe Te Kwai, and he basically makes the argument that you cannot know in standard Malay or informal Malay whether a girl is interested in you or not. Because, and um, he says, not sure if it's correct, but still he says in, in standardized formal Malay, you have to ask my little sister, how pleasant would it be if I, your older brother, were to receive an answer that would grant the desires lingering deep in my heart for so long? Please, little sister, do not be so unyielding to deny me my hopes, right? And in low Malay, you would just say, give me a straight answer, yes or no. So according to him, low Malay was superior to high Malay. Right, definitely shorter and more concise, that's true. And so kind of going back to the idea of um, formal Malay somehow being more affiliated with official users, with the government... I think the literature for, for people familiar with the Indonesian linguistic landscape, they would probably be more familiar, like I am, with um, the government at Balai Pustaka, which you uh, describe as a kind of rival to the Indonesian Chinese um, entrepreneurs. So how do we position these two body of um, language producers, in a way, and tell us a bit more about their intersections and interactions? I would say there were certainly intersections, interactions. One example would be Sultan Tadir Ali Shabana, who was part of the Pujanga Baru generation. So they were highly educated. They knew they had access to European languages, but they could also write in a very beautiful standard Malay. It was very popular. Most of these people were from Sumatra. And yes, there was some competition because they thought that their Malay was superior, but also that that should be the vehicle of a united Indonesian nationalism, whereas generally the Chinese print entrepreneurs weren't really too concerned with that, but there were exceptions. So Sultan Tatir Ali Shabana essentially said the Chinese authors have a beautiful expressive language. Just look at their, how they describe a football match, for example. And we, as the sort of upcoming generation of Indonesian literati can learn from that, can learn from that expressive language. But the other type of synergies are attested as well. Uh, there is an author called Nyo Yulan, who, was, who started his career as, as a journalist and as a businessman as well. I think he was in aviation, but he was 
very much pro-China at the beginning of his career. So he wrote for Sinpol, which which really immediately puts you in the sort of camp of pro-ROC anti-colonialism. He was even imprisoned by the Japanese for that, for being too pro-Chinese. But then during the Indonesian Revolution, he really took a turn of we, meaning the Chinese journalists, should really embrace this new standard language, this Bahasa Indonesia, because we... Our future is here in the archipelago, so we need to uh, make sure that we accept and adopt the standard language. So there was a lot of competition, but there were also synergies. I mean, the competition was mostly that Balai Pustaka strongly rejected the type of pulp fiction, they called it Puku Jabul, that um, you saw uh, being published by the Chinese-owned printing presses. They They saw themselves as having some sort of quality control. But the similarities were there as well, definitely. I mean, they had both, um, I would say, literary traditions were obsessed with the sort of clash between tradition and modernity. They they were quite essentialist in their own way. If you are Asian, Asian values are the best thing for you, right? Don't get polluted by these encroaching European values. And Balai Pusaka, by the way, also published a lot of entertaining literature. There's a really nice paper by Varuno Mahdi, and he basically looked at all of their titles. And there wasn't initially too many differences in the topics covered. And that, that became a, a later concern. At the same time, Balai Pustaka was rather selective. Um, they didn't write a lot about Islam. They were more interested in Adat, right? And the authors they published, they, they were rarely ethnically Chinese, or they weren't from Medan, they weren't from Malaya. This is, um, in fact, beautifully explained in Hank Meyer's uh, We Are Playing Relatives. He basically highlights these silences among Balai Pustaka. Right. And I think these silences, to some extent, were mitigated with the presence of uh, print entrepreneurs that you're describing in your book. Probing into their role a bit more with respect to the nation, how do we think about them with uh, and position them, I think, within the kind of paradigms that's uh, presented, for example, in Benedict Anderson's Imagine Communities, where he talked about how print culture became this means for imagining the nation. So there's this diversity that you're highlighting that existed across um, Indonesia. How does that engage with the kind of ideas about nationalism that we are familiar with when we think about Indonesia and the Imagine Community? It certainly is a case that Print capitalism, as, as described by Benedict Sanderson, is the cornerstone of a proto-nationalist type of mobilization. So without a printing press in a vernacular language, you wouldn't have that. So I fully agree with that. But the contribution I'm trying to make to that is there seems to be an intermediate step, which is to introduce a reading culture that is understandable. It has to be in an entertaining language, because if you are a literate person, you like literature, these things are important for you. You probably remember the first book that made you interested in the wider world and you like reading for the sake of it. And that had to be introduced, I think, because reading used to be a communal affair in the Malay world. So people would get together and people would recite poems, share, other people would listen. Without that, reading becomes rather dull. It becomes a sort of clerical affair, right? So the stories needed to be interesting. And I think what did the trick is serialized stories. For example, the the very popular one from the mid-19th century was Samkok, so the Three Kingdoms, which is a Chinese story, very well known, that it turns out in translation, 
being translated in Malay, in, in Javanese, people really liked. And there were joke sections, there were letters from subscribers to the newspaper. The sort of entertainment, the pleasure of reading would be my contribution. And there's another thing that, uh, well, Benedict Anderson has already alluded to in his chapter about the Creole newspaper editors and, and journalists. And that was, I think, in a Latin American context. But more broadly, you would see that communities that have access to multiple cultures, multiple languages, so the sort of in-between groups, tend to be trailblazers of print entrepreneurship. And also, I would say, cultural entrepreneurship in general. So we don't only think about the Chinese editors of newspapers, but also, for example, cinema. If you look at Bollywood, for example, I mean, there's so many people of, of Parsi origins being very influential at that, and um, Jewish people in theatre, for example. So there's definitely uh, something with having access to multiple languages, uh, multiple cultures, and being able to bridge popular tastes across communities. And that plurilingualism uh, is a very common, in a way, migrant experience. So how does your book contribute to our understanding of migration then, in addition to what you've highlighted about building the nation? Well, people from precisely those positions would typically say when we talk about a topic, this happens in my family as well. The sort of plurilingualism, the having multiple languages competing in your head, but also some of the other things like the making fun of newcomers, something uh, they would do, of course, and, and the not being deemed fluent enough and the having an accent. And of course, the uh, sort of first generation would be uh, more fluent in the old language, so to speak. And then the second generation could um, essentially do a bit of both. And then the third generation would be more fluent in the new language. They would sound funny in, um, let's say, the language of the ancestors. So mm-hmm. all of these things are quite universal. And what I've done is to find concrete evidence of this phenomenon in a historical context. That's one thing. And of course, I couldn't do it by interviewing people. But what I could do is um, use my knowledge, understanding of this phenomenon in the present to read back into the past um, and, and see what was going on exactly. And one of the things trying to argue is that it's nothing to be ashamed of because mm-hmm. it's such a universal. Uh, it, it goes with the... Um, migrant experience more broadly. Um, It's universal. Everyone does it. And people have this idea that their language isn't pure anymore, Mm. that their culture isn't pure anymore. And I'm trying to deconstruct that as well, because what they're doing is, of course, a very legitimate human experience. Right. And besides um, thinking about purity, in some ways, a lot of the exciting developments in language happens because of contact. And one of the... um, outcomes of that contact is that I think as you put it Chinese Indonesians really enhanced the great tradition of uh, Malay satire and this goes back to what I highlighted at the beginning of the interview about how funny this book is and could you tell us a bit more about how satire functioned in this corpus of text that you looked at and maybe what's the funniest joke that you have encountered in the archives? Right. Well, there's quite a lot of competition when it comes to funny jokes but (laughs) it is a good point that humour is something you always have in this sort of colonial setting or any oppressive society, because humor is the best and sometimes the only way to say what ought to be said. And the moment you make somebody laugh, they look very bad if they then resent you for it. So you've already won, in a way, uh, at being a decent human. That's why it is important, because you can essentially convey a message and sometimes not always get away with it. It, It depends on how versatile you are with this sort of 
taking issue against oppression, against uh, inequality, also with censorship by making it indirect. And that to me is also a linguistic process because if you are uh, translingual, uh, plurilingual, then you could become very good at concealing essentially some of the jokes so that only people from the same linguistic background would understand what is essentially being said. And I think that is very powerful. That, mm. For example, and, and the Malaysians, for example, are very good at it because they would give somebody a nickname, which means something in Cantonese, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to know Cantonese, for example, to understand the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I see in, in colonial era Indonesia as well. So sometimes the joke would only be understandable if you happen to also know Hokkien, for example. Mm. So it is a way of navigating around the censorship that was obviously there in, in colonial times. I mean, if you said things that were too insulting to the colonial government, I mean, you would end up in a in a in an internment camp and maybe die there. So <laughs> um, it was, in a way, a serious business, as uh, contradictory as that may sound. But there is also an element for jokes uh, about jokes for the sake of it, for entertainment, right? So that was this sort of print entrepreneurship, you want to make your newspaper entertaining. And that's why you have a joke section. And these jokes, I mean, there is a type, a genre of jokes that are universally funny, that would still be funny today. Let's see, um, one example, if I remember correctly, was I think 1920s, a Singaporean newspaper in Malay. And there were two friends meeting each other on the Mm -hmm. street. And one said something along the lines of, uh, I heard you got married. So what is your wife like? Can she cook? And then the other person says, no, not really. Well, is she good at sewing? No, she can't do that either. Well, what can she do? Well, she's good at uh, singing. You poor man, you should have brought a canary. That's accompanied by a nice picture of a canary. I was actually laughing when I read that joke, and it was at the British Library, the African Asian Study uh, Room. Oh. And surrounding me were people doing really serious topics. I think one was looking at the uh, Bengal famine, and somebody was looking at the Mau Mau uprising. And I felt kind of a cheat because this was about, you know, um, male chauvinistic toilet humor, but it's a true story. Yes, and equally important in some ways as the Bengal famine. Um, I want to jump to your last line, which is related to humor in some ways. So you talked about how, and here I quote, even the sarcasm, the swearing, the impoliteness, and the bigotry that some of these texts were arrived with might generate some diversion, if only to recognize in them the self-same human proclivities that shape our own existence. So this description of the text that you examined um, really reminds me of the internet. I mean, some ways how um, similar places of language are enacted on the digital um, landscape. So would you be would it be fair to say that the Chinese Indonesian vernacular press is the internet of their time, and do they hold lessons for us in the digital age? I think it would be fair to say that in the same way that nationalism couldn't take shape without imagined communities, mm-hmm. the internet could not have emerged without the vernacular press, which accustomed people to write their opinions, read those of others, and um, navigate through the world being helped by the written words. And internet might be a basically a secondary development from that. Mm-hmm. But 
I mean, I was among the naive people thinking that the internet would solve our problems. It would rid us once and for all of the tyranny and the indifference and the polarization and the people wantonly invading other people's countries. Well, in my defense, I was 11 when I thought that. That's when I first learned about the internet. But I wouldn't be the right person to formulate lessons for the future. One very obvious one is um, look at the source. Right. It doesn't matter when you're online or in uh, reading a newspaper from the 1920s, because people always have a reason to say what they're saying. So, what was their agenda? Uh, what was their political background? And um, you know, what were they getting out of it? I think that's a very interesting one. What was the ulterior message they were trying to get across? Mm. I think that works still pretty much the same now with the internet and and with these sort of traditional media. When we think about the crisis of precursor to, to this sort of ability to express ourselves. And we can also think about the ways in which, as you highlight in your book, colonialism helped to shape that sort of um, linguistic landscape. And I want to compare your book to, I think, um, Rachel Lell's um, Taming Babel a few years back, where it seems that projects of the British colonial government in Malaya and the Dutch in Indonesia had very different outcomes, where the British um, was relatively more successful and cutting down on the kind of diversity in vernacular language used. So would you like to sort of comment on why you think this happened and how did these sort of different linguistic landscape maybe have uh, different legacies in terms of multi-ethnicity in Malaysia and Indonesia? Yes. First of all, Taming Babu has really inspired me. I even named one section after it. And reading it, I see a lot of similarities, actually. I see more similarities than uh, differences between colonial era, what is now Malaysia, and uh, what has become Indonesia. I think there's one major difference, which is that in the Malaysian case, Malay was associated with the dominant ethnic majority. Mm-hmm. And in Indonesia, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. There were... A lot of people who spoke Malay, even at home, but they wouldn't self-identify as Malay people. They could be um, from Ambon, they could be Papua, they they could be from Kupang, uh, Batavia, and and they maybe wouldn't even have known Malay people unless they happened to live in a port city and had friends in the Kampung Melayu. But Mm. um, the, the language and the ethnicity is more detached in the Indonesian case. And that's actually what became its success, I would say, because it didn't belong to anybody in particular, except maybe a very small percentage of ethnic Malay people in in Sumatra and and Kalimantan. Mm. But by virtue of that, it belonged to everybody. Mm. And that is, I think, very powerful because it means you have a post-colonial nation state in which the official language is not the one of the former colonizer. Mm also not the one of the biggest ethnicity. Um, that's quite a unique situation. Well, I can think of Kenya, where uh, Swahili is also not the language mm. of the, but there it's co-official with English, so it wouldn't really be a good comparison either. Um, whereas in Malaysia, there are relatively large numbers percentage-wise of people classified as Chinese. So it would have been very difficult, of course, uh, for the then Malaysian government to completely get rid of that. I mean, they wanted their education, they wanted their books, they wanted their newspapers in Chinese. But diversity is, well, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because diversity of what exactly? Mm. Um, If you encapsulate diversity in the law, and for example, you want to say Chinese has to have a, a higher status, then you're probably end up giving that status to Mandarin. 
right? And not to mm -hmm. Cantonese, not to Hokkien, all of these languages that were already spoken in the archipelago um, from the 14th century. So as Mandarin has been around the region for, well, by then, in the 1950s, it was around for 50 years when they were making these decisions. So um, you find diversity, of course, in, in both countries, but it's, uh, it's what is allowed to be diverse in the mm -hmm. official realm. But the other thing is in the unofficial realm, I mean, diversity is popping up everywhere. I mean, it's unstoppable, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. now with the internet, right? I mean, you can't do anything about it and governments aren't trying to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of runs itself. And so as the independent nations go their own way, these colonial legacies, they're still there. They're quite persistent, but they are diminishing over the years. And this diversity, in some ways, also meant the end of the vernacular press that you're describing in the early 20th century. So yes. What are your personal thoughts on that? Tragedy or necessity? I suppose one person's necessity has been another's tragedy. That's a good point. Uh, since the dawn of time. Um, part of me thinks that if Indonesia hadn't united itself as unrelentingly as it did, maybe the whole global decolonization colonization movement wouldn't have happened as fast as it did because people were looking at Indonesia, how to have this sort of massive multi-ethnic country um, and unitedly, as the narrative goes, kick out the colonizers who have, well, much better, are much better armed and all of that. So people from Ghana to Egypt to India, uh, everywhere were looking at that. And Indonesia is very important in this sort of decolonizing movement Globally, up until the 1950s, everybody was looking at what's happening in, in Bandung, for example. And I would say that was the necessary part. I also don't want to be nostalgic for things colonial, because if we're going to be very honest, I mean, the reason that this Sino-Malay literature emerged is because you have a group that is sort of wedged between a say, oppressive colonial elite, uh, the increasingly dissatisfied indigenous masses, and they themselves were having all sorts of, not just suffering, but also problems with their own identity. Are we going to be China-oriented, Indonesia-oriented? Are we going to support the colonial status quo? And in that sort of combustive cocktail, mm -hmm. you get great literature. But I would, I would not want those circumstances back, of course, to uh, for the sake of uh, my fun texts to read. I mean, they, they reveal plenty of human suffering, and that's, I think, what makes them a bit different from texts that uh, emerge out of other societies. I, I will say one thing, though. The eradication of Chinese culture that started in the 1960s in Indonesia and that lasted until the mid-1990s, that was certainly not necessary. Mm -hmm. That was a tragedy, especially if you look at Thailand, the Philippines, Malaysia, that sort of allowed the Chinese culture to continue and I haven't suffered for it at all. Right. Yeah. And I, I think you have highlighted a, uh, a lot of interesting points about how the impact of language policies, there's not just this sort of impact, just the language use, but also the broader Indonesian Chinese culture in this case. And that's, um, and that's something that needs to be examined further. So for people who are interested in these sort of examinations, um, what would your advice be for junior scholars who are looking to handle lots of languages, massive corpus of tech? Um, what would your tips be? Well, it depends on how junior they are. It's, it's good if you're doing a PhD, right? And you have 
Mm -hmm. a couple of years ahead of you and you have institutional support and mm -hmm. you have people invested in uh, you succeeding in this project, that will be the ideal stage of one career to actually look at this big corpus because it's going to be a question of big data mm -hmm. and um, it's going to bring new methods as well. Uh, and my biggest problems were technological and they were also financial and logistic and even uh, in terms of methods, I mean, the e-humanities is uh, in a way quite annoying because people make it look so easy. If you go to the conferences, right? I mean, they, they all say we have this new revolutionary type of answering big data questions and now we can do mm -hmm. stuff that we, and, but then you ask, how do you do it? And it turns out that all of them have people doing it for them, right? <laughs> uh, and, and this is important if you are a junior scholar to actually know these things, because if you want to be autonomous you need to learn a lot of things you need to learn a bit of python github um you know mm -hmm. a bit of uh text encoding initiative and if you want to dedicate your career to that it better be worth it so what kind of questions do you want to tackle that cannot be addressed by the human brain in a traditional way because for me it was mostly about having quicker access to things i wanted to read anyway so i, I used the corpus as a dignified search engine and so I didn't have to read 200,000 pages before I wanted to, uh, before I encountered what I wanted to find. That in itself, I think, is quite revolutionary. Mm. But to think about these big questions that the human brain cannot tackle, um, I think we also have to think about, well, but is the answer going to surprise us or not? Because sometimes people invest a lot of time money it, it takes a lot of money you need to um, first of all pay somebody probably to assign metadata and then to do ocr and to uh, all of these things and have some sort of uh, infrastructure that you need to pay for every year right because that costs a lot of money as well and then mm -hmm. uh, what kind of questions can you then answer and also is the answer going to change the way we think or is that something that people would say well i knew that yeah and i think in some ways that is a great challenge of digital humanities and the way in which we can integrate our questioning and our tools, which has not always been done successfully. That's great advice. Thank you. We're coming sort of to the end of this interview, and I just want to have quick thoughts from you about two things. First, um, would you like to recommend any book to our readers at, um, at um, NBN? If you read Indonesian, there is this book um, by Coco Lubis, and it's called Roman Medan. Mm -hmm. I like it because it tells the other side of the story. Mm -hmm. It essentially tells this sort of print capitalism culture through the eyes of precisely these authors from Sumatra, from um, especially the North Sumatran city of Medan. And, and they often were in some sort of competition with their Chinese colleagues, of course. And you say nasty things about each other because uh, you're competing, really. And um, so that sort of really went into the realm of language as well. And they would say, well, our language is better. And then the Chinese would have an ask to your response as well. I have some of them in the book, but uh, Dr. Lubis has uh, quite a lot of other examples as well. So that really complements, I think, my story. And well, obviously, the whole corpus of these late colonial texts are worth reading. Um, there's a very nice overview of them in Claudine Salmon's. 1981 bibliography and then there's like short description so whatever topic you're interested in i would see whether there's a sino malay text about it right and yeah the work of um, Pauli Salman definitely is the major uh, sort of groundbreaking contribution well I, I would not be able to write this book i think 
without uh, the work of Claudine Samu and also without uh, that of Professor Leo Surya Dinata. They, they've really laid yes. the foundation of, of the fields. Yes, and I think you're further it, definitely. Thank you so much for discussing this book. Tell us a bit more before we go about your next research project. Well, I don't see myself doing field work anytime soon to financial and pandemic constraints. Mm, but in an ideal world, what I would like to do is, is to continue working on language and diaspora, this sort of intersection, but I'd like to include food in the mm -hmm. equation. I've done it a bit in, in, I think it may have been chapter five, where I talk about uh, how that worked in the sort of Chinese Indonesian context, but basically what you eat is is a bit like what you how you speak. In um, it, it tells so much about not just a sensorial thing, but also how you align yourself with the recipient society, with the uh, so-called old culture, also how globalized you are. All of that is coming together on the plate, so to uh, speak. And um, I think from a linguistic point of view, there's really something interesting to be said about these Indonesian diasporas, if you like that term, that you find everywhere globally now from Sri Lanka to Suriname of course in the Netherlands but how the changing evolving food practices tell a story that some people have talked about but I think more people ought to do it. Yeah I hope you don't get into a kind of battle over which culture owns what food which is what I guess. But that is exactly why it's important to do I think people talk about it all the time people care about it. That's true. That's definitely true. And thanks so much for sharing about that. And I do hope to look out for your food book in a couple of years. Um, Thank you. Thanks for being with us. And um, as final farewell, you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. And we have been discussing Language and Governed Indonesia's Print Entrepreneurs, 1911-1949, published by Cornell University Press. Thanks so much for listening in and see you next time.